And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with a new episode of Cinema Collider. Recently ran an article, I think it was last week, with J.J. Abrams stating that uh, the Disney Star Wars sequels just might have benefited from better planning. In fact, I'm going to give you a quote here. I do think that there's nothing more important than knowing where you're going. Well, my response to that is, no shit. I won't regurgitate the article, and you can find the link to the original Collider article in in my show notes and read it for yourself. I'll provide that right after this episode. You don't have to be in the film industry. You don't even have to love movies or know anything about how they're made to understand a basic concept that we are taught almost from the moment we start attending school, and that is planning. Think back to how we were introduced as children to organizers and notebooks and taught how to place things in chronological order. We, we did worksheets that underscored the importance of getting from A to B. When we study basic story elements, we are taught the importance of beginning, middle, and end. When creating characters by sixth grade, our teachers are demanding that we have plans for these characters and their arcs. How will they be different by the end? What changes will befall our characters from the various challenges and issues they will face on their journey? The irony of Star Wars is that it's all about the hero's journey, the common narrative plot that so many classics have embraced. Whether Star Wars or Tolkien or even Game of Thrones, it is about the journey and inherently implies that eventually we will reach a destination. No matter what level of filmmaking, you need to plan, even if it's a single one-off story. It all starts in the magic world of pre-production. And look, before I get into everything, Game of Thrones is a shining example of this. How many of you watched it all the way till the end, till that final season, and felt that they just kind of rushed it, and they really didn't know where they were going? Like, they just kind of ended it. And and I know people argue, it's like the Sopranos. Well, you know, that's part of the mystique. They they want you to put you on edge, you know, that kind of stuff. Maybe it was just some piss-poor planning, and in fact... The planning really, in my opinion, if you really wanted to end it with a bang, should have been the death of of the Winter King. That's the one that it really should have ended with, not adjusting some chairs and everybody sitting in a circle with Bran taking control of the family. Before I film-splain, just think about your own life. Most of you listening likely heard numerous times, well, what are you going to do? What's your plan? You got to have a plan. Where do you want to end up? And maybe the most important question, and just where do you think this will take you? Our lives are all the hero's journey. And granted, not all things can be planned and detailed and scheduled. There's a certain amount of give and wiggle room that that can take us off the path and onto the road less traveled. But overall, I think it is safe to say that for most of us, it's better to have some kind of planning in place. Look, I'm going to give a personal aside right here for a moment. When my mother was dying, I worked like you would not believe to try to save her life. She was dying of emphysema, and I endeavored uh, twice uh, to get her a a heart transplant. I'm sorry, a a double lung transplant. Little did I know she would eventually need a heart transplant as well, but I didn't know that until after she died. The point is, uh, once she turned down the first uh, double lung transplant, and the reason why she said because she was a smoker She would eventually just smoke again, and it wasn't fair since she wrecked her own lungs. It wasn't fair to take lungs uh, from someone who didn't do this to themselves. 
And while noble, it wasn't easy for me to accept. And even though I tried again when she was reaching the end, and by that point it was too late, I didn't want to know it was too late. And I really didn't have a plan in place other than to get her new lungs. And finally, it was a doctor on the phone who said to me, and Mr. Smith, just where do you think this is all going? And that's when I realized the only real plan in place was her pending death. So I had a plan at first. It almost went to the plan till she turned down the double lungs. And then the plan went completely off the rails. So is planning the basic human ingredient to life? If so, why isn't this applied more toward the film industry that often likes to preach the importance of planning? Now, one can argue on the other side of things as well. I, I mean, I know someone who overplans. I call it, when I talk to them about it, the plan for the plan of the plan to make the plan to plan. Once they come up with a plan, they analyze the plan. Then they proofread the plan. They re-examine the plan, run the plan through the numbers by another set of eyes only to circle back to the plan and reevaluate the plan all before actually committing to execute the plan. Simple term is analysis paralysis. But by the time the execution phase hits, the plan is often outdated, requiring a whole new re-examination or perhaps redoing of the original plan. You know, kind of like the Avatar sequels. By the time James Cameron gets around to actually shooting one of these things, the technology he has planned the films around might actually exist or might even be outdated. On a single film, the ability to break from the plan can be fortuitous. Look at the storyboards for the original Jaws, and you find much didn't go the way it was planned. And that was good for all of us. The problems with the mechanized shark forced Spielberg to course correct and use his imagination and gave us something far better. Those brief 10 minutes of screen time for the shark pay off far more than what would have had had the shark surface to eat Alex Kintner or Ben Gardner's boat shown under attack. Instead, an uncooperative effect was made to look even better under the less is more philosophy, and a whole new breed of film was made as a result. Films were once planned to the fine detail, but once Jaws 2 legitimized big-budget sequels, the planning of careful detail, the concept of continuity, and cultural respect went by the wayside. It didn't matter so much if the same actors were cast or even if the stories meshed. Keep in mind, aside from his legal issues with Universal, Roy Scheider, who played Brody in the original Jaws, admitted if he, if he didn't return as Brody, the studio was going to cast someone else in the role anyway, and he didn't want to see anyone else in that role but him. This also went for Anthony Perkins, as Psycho 2 was not born out of demand, but because the slasher formula the original film launched was at its peak in 1982 and there was money to be made. Psycho 2 was a financial move. If Perkins didn't return, eyes were on Christopher Walken to play Norman Bates, and Perkins knew that. The plan was financial, and that's where we get into the issue with J.J. Abrams. Everything is a financial plan now. Now granted, it's been for some time, and, and the bottom line is always the real answer. It wasn't about story anymore. The Jaws franchise certainly showed this. I mean, say what you will about Jaws 2. It was a high-quality production and sequel. 
However, the behind-the-scenes story of how the film was made shows the battle between the old plan and the new plan, which I call the financial plan. The studio didn't care that they had a terrific script for Jaws 2, or that its original director had a darker plan for the film that was rich in characters and story. The new plan was simple. Give more of what people got the first time and double it. More shark, more big screen, more sun, more action, more color, more everything. Jaws 2 might very well be the first dead teenager movie as the shark in Jaws 2 is really a stalker of horny teens and hit the whole have sex and die formula perfectly. I mean, Tina and Ed are, are a prime example of that. The point is, read Jaws 2 the novel, which was written from the original Howard Sackler screenplay, and you get something way different that made it to screen. Jaws 2 the movie was rewritten by Carl Gottlieb, literally banging out pages only a day before shooting to get them filmed when he was brought in to clean up the mess of Jaws 2's original production. Universal broke from the original plan to create a sequel to best the original. Instead, they turned to a sequel to deliver more of the same. So while I defend Jaws 2 as a well-made, well-produced sequel with high production values, it is also a film made by committee and paint by numbers, trying to check off the boxes and hit the algorithms before there were even algorithms. This new plan wasn't even in place yet with James Bond. While we were technically on Bond number three, the third guy playing James Bond by 1978 with Roger Moore in the role, the Bond series was uneven and didn't seem to always follow the check the boxes formula at the time. Some had better stories, some moved closer to farce than others. You, you just didn't know what you were getting with Bond and it would stay that way well into the late 90s. That's another story as Bond is almost the self-driving Tesla car of movies. It can almost run on autopilot. Now stay with me with Jaws for a moment. There really was no long term, you know, for the franchise because Spielberg never envisioned Jaws as a franchise. I, I'm sticking with Spielberg and Jaws right now because Abrams is often compared to Spielberg or as some have called him Spielberg light. Spielberg said from the get-go that Jaws was not a sequel kind of movie. It was a single, standalone story. Anything else, to paraphrase Spielberg, would be a cheap carnival trick. Universal went forward anyway, because how do you not make a part two to the highest grossing motion picture ever and the one that bore the summer blockbuster? With or without Spielberg, Jaws 2 would happen. You bring back the same producers who claim they did so to prevent a bad movie from being made and sullying the good rep of, of the original film, and they tried to recreate the magic with the original plan. Find a relatively unknown but talented director and see if lightning will strike twice. And that is where the plan went wrong. John Hancock, the original director for Jaws 2, had other ideas for his sequel, you can hear all about that in episode 53 of this podcast. The point is, Hancock's plan didn't jive with Universal's suddenly financially woke plan. Creativity and story took a backseat to profits. Universal wanted hot kids, shark attacks, and big screen action. This time the shark would attack and sink a helicopter, while in the original story, that is not what happens at all. It was far more believable, trust me. 
check out the novelized version of Jaws 2, and you'll understand what I mean. Roy Scheider refused to return, and some legal pressure and some legal magic and a big fat paycheck changed his mind. The story took place once again in Amity, because that's what audiences wanted. Keep things the same. Give a little different, but not too much. Now stick with me on this, folks. I'm going to circle it right back to Star Wars and J.J. Abrams. There was never any long-term plan for a Jaws franchise. By the time the original director, John Hancock, was fired after the first dailies came in and the studio panicked in fear the film was too dark, they turned back to Spielberg to bolster the new plan, bring back the guy who made it all work in the first place. Spielberg had his own ideas, and it wasn't part of the new plan for Universal. He wanted to make a prequel with Quint and the whole story of the Indianapolis sinking. In fact, Spielberg wrote the script over a holiday weekend and Universal rejected it. Steve also said it would have to wait a year because he was also filming Close Encounters coming up. That was also not a part of Universal's new financial plan. They needed the film out ASAP to capitalize off the heat from the first film. This is part of the new plan. Timing. Keep the content coming while the audience is hungry. Don't let them get full on something else. So keep in mind, Jaws was made in 75. It was released in 75. It was made in 74. And Jaws 2 did not come along and released until 1978. That's a long time, especially for a budding franchise. Also keep in mind, audiences were distracted at this new buffet because a kid named George Lucas added his Star Wars dish to the menu. And sharks were now second to spaceships and Death Stars and lightsabers. On top of it, Universal watched with envious eyes as merchandising for Star Wars created the toy store equivalent of gasoline lines as demand outstrips supply for figures and toys and other money-making merch. Jaws 2 went full steam ahead with a new plan and no consideration for where it would eventually go. A TV director with a terrible monster movie called Bug was selected, and in the end, we got a film that did just what the plan required. It checked the boxes. It's not a bad film, but Jaws 2 was persecuted for not being the original. To this day, I still say that if the original script had been shot by John Hancock, we would have had a sequel that at least matched up to the original, if not bested it. And if you don't believe me, read the book and you will understand. A number of people on Twitter have followed my advice and done it and said they've tweeted back to me, Harrison, man, why didn't they make this? At the time, I owned the Jaws 2 log, a making of the movie book by Ray Loyne. And at the end, Sid Sheinberg, the then head of uh, Universal Studios and the guy who greenlit both Jaws and Jaws 2, and was husband, Ellen Brody's Lorraine Gary, bragged that he already had plans for a Jaws 3. Plans? Well, you saw what we got with Jaws 3, right? Jaws 3D? That was planned? According to director Joe Alves, the film was mishandled from the beginning. Jaws 2 made a shitload of money. Not the big money the original made, but for a while, Jaws 2 was the record holder for the most money a sequel had ever made. It took five years to get a third film to the screen. But I thought, there was a plan, Sid? Really? Where was this plan? The plan all along was to include the Brodies again 
And as dumb as that is, that was the plan. You can hear all about the making of Jaws 3D in episode three of my podcast, where I go into far greater detail. However, it was a bad plan, as we will see exactly the studio thinking going into this. Just crank out another one. It was the brand name of Jaws on it. They considered making the shark in part three the same one that was fried at the end of Jaws 2 for some kind of connection to the other films. Ladies and gentlemen, this is cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, to a T. There was Star Wars to keep up with as well. Jaws 3D would be coming out at the same time as Return of the Jedi. And in the new plan of filmmaking, Star Wars was winning. Jaws 3 had to catch up. And the shortest way was through the gimmick of 3D, which briefly resurged in the early 80s. It was techy and cool, and while not in space, it made the shark story work for the tech-loving kiddies. Universal's plan was called the hit-and-run strategy, and it is here where I will say this is akin to Disney's plan for the Star Wars sequels. They knew people would come out to see the new Jaws movie because it was fucking Jaws. There were other shark movies, other monster from the deep films since the original Jaws, but none brandished the trademark name of Jaws, and that was important. It was a designer label. And people would show up no matter what. Now, let me divert here for a minute and steer this toward the Halloween franchise, which was also from Universal Studios. It was the same thing. By 1982, Halloween was the highest grossing indie film ever, the original Halloween in 1978. It's subpar paint-by-the-numbers sequel retread Halloween 2 in 1981 proved that all you have to do is slap the brand name over the product and people will come in droves and give their money. Halloween 2 helped launch the horror slasher franchise. And the third film followed this plan perfectly. While you can hear about Halloween 3 in detail in episode 20 of this podcast, the original plan was to make something entirely new to go against the franchise plan and make a film called Season of the Witch, not Halloween 3. Instead, after the film was shot, Universal, the owner of Jaws, got nervous and appealed with bags of money to John Carpenter to put the brand name of Halloween over the title, knowing completely it was a lie and dupe audiences into coming because the film was different and they didn't want different. That wasn't part of the plan. And the strategy worked. Halloween 3 pulled a hit and run like Jaws 3 would do a year later and recoup its budget and make a little on the top. And Jaws 3D did the same. It was released at the end of the summer of 1983 and it was still making money when it was yanked from theaters as the bad word of mouth had already started getting around. This was the new plan and Star Wars was going to follow it. We saw a great turn after the original 1977 Star Wars film. The Empire Strikes Back took us in a new, darker direction with a great script, building far more on characters that were cardboard cutouts in the original film. And, and we got Yoda and AT walkers and, and snow speeders and tauntauns on ice planets. And we got dizzying effects and daring adventure and a cliffhanger ending that made going to see these movies so much fun. And why? Because George Lucas had almost zero to do with making The Empire Strikes Back. He was too busy with Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was only on set, it is said, about a week 
to do a basic supervising visit. Lucas, for the record, feels that The Empire Strikes Back is the worst of all the Star Wars films, and that should tell you something. I talk about all of this in depth in episode 18 of my cinema podcast. By the time Jedi went into production, Return of the Jedi, the new plan was in place for the Star Wars franchise. While billed the last episode of the trilogy, there was always the plan for more Star Wars films. Lucas admitted, after denying, that he had plans for a total of nine films. But by Jedi, we saw the new financial plan in effect. Ewoks were created to beef up the lacking of soft, plushy toys for kids. Dumb slapstick humor was thrown in such as Chewbacca and the Tarzan yell. We had bored paycheck acting from Carrie Fisher and, and Harrison Ford. The only one who seemed to be having a good time was the guy who played Palpatine. He was chewing scenery left and right but we got lots of toys in Jabba's lair and it was clear that this film series was being built around merchandising. And while Jedi gives us a rousing ending, in my opinion, it is the weakest of the original trilogy because of its conscious decision to follow the new studio financial plan. And this brings us right to J.J. Abrams and Star Wars with Disney. The late 90s and early 2000s gave us the prequels, And enough has been said about them. And say what you will, they didn't exactly follow the new financial plan because for better or worse, George Lucas was making the films as he wanted to make them. This has its pros and cons. He wrote them and he directed them. And most of all, his vision was his because he financed them. But they were not part of the financial plan that was now firmly in place in Hollywood. Disney had also reached a renaissance thanks to The Little Mermaid in around 1989-1990 and quickly turned all of its 2D animation efforts into the same thing, rolling it out to great success with Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Lion King, those big Broadway show-stopping tune kind of format movies that gave a little something to the adults and kids alike. And then Disney hit it with 3D animation and Pixar, and that awoke the sleeping giant. Many of you forget that by the early 80s, Disney was in trouble. Big, expensive animated films were bombing. Its foray into PG territory space sagas like with the Black Hole were laughable. And it tried to go gritty with PG fare with thrillers and S.E. Hinton translations. Disney was all over the fucking place. It had no plan. And it showed. Until Little Mermaid came along, Disney was racking up one failure after another and was no longer considered at the, as the apex predator of the animation field. Hard to believe that when you look at the company now. It's the 500-pound gorilla of the entire industry, and it appears, according to J.J. Abrams, that it might be making some of its same mistakes again. The prequels made their mark, as I said, for better or worse, and in my opinion, mostly worse. And there was talk that maybe Star Wars was possibly done. I mean, could that actually be? Of course not. Hell, even Jaws 3D didn't kill the Jaws franchise, and Halloween 3 didn't kill that one. Even Friday the 13th 5, the, what is it, the New Blood or whatever it was, didn't kill that golden goose, a new beginning. I'm sorry, Friday the 13th, a new beginning. It didn't kill it. And you know why? They went right back to the Jaws 2 plan. Give 
people the same. Don't stray too far from the formula. I've said in previous podcasts that Halloween 2, 1981's Halloween 2, gets the love that it does because it gave us the same exact story all over again with the same exact characters in the same exact town on the same exact night. The film was making money no matter what when they were going to make it. So it borrowed from Jaws 2, made by the same studio, and took audiences back to terra firma. Never mind the fact that John Carpenter himself disavowed the film to the point that it was even removed from official canon in the 2018 release of what is deemed the true Halloween 2, the 2018 film. After the misfire of Halloween 3, which was never intended to be part of the Haddonfield storyline, the franchise went right back to that little town with Michael Myers ridiculously restored to life after clearly being killed off in 1981's Part 2. Dr. Sam Loomis returned, and we connected to Jamie Lee through Danielle Harris. The move was rewarded by gobs of cash at the box office and resurged the franchise into what we have today. The financial plan worked. Now, did it care about the story? Characters? Plot? No. There was no plan in this case. The storyline ends up going off the rails with stupid cult subplots, then into new timelines circling back to the original film, ignoring everything else as with Halloween H2O and Resurrection, then into 2018, which goes back and ignores H2O, Resurrection, and the 1981 Halloween 2. You see what I mean? The only plan is money. And I think this is what we see with Disney Star Wars. Friday the 13th would do this with Jason Lives restoring their monster villain and bringing audiences back to the tried and true plan after going off the rails and trying to go in a different direction. And Jaws the Revenge will do this, despite how awfully, by returning us to Amity and bringing back the actual Mrs. Brody. Hear episode two of my podcast on the cynical ploy behind this excuse of a film and why this is more of a cash grab and tax write-off than a movie. My entire podcast, folks, is based on Jaws the Revenge. The financial plan was kicking in. Call it the franchise plan. Story and quality are secondary. The point is to exploit your resource to its fullest extent and never alienate your audience too much. So when it came time for new Star Wars films... Disney was now in a powerful position. It was, to borrow a line, the greatest power in the universe. It made a $4 billion offer to George Lucas. But let's face it, the shining jewels in that buyout were Star Wars and Indiana Jones as part of Lucasfilm. And the mouse wasted no time moving new films into production. While Lucas offered handwritten story ideas for the new films, Disney politely declined and told him no. They had their plans for the franchise and the Skywalker saga. But did they? Their first step was to enact the financial plan, the franchise plan, and restore balance to the Force. The Force Awakens ensured we brought everyone back to familiar territory by basically remaking Episode 4, which was the original 1977 Star Wars. The trailer ensured familiarity with Han Solo letting everyone know we were home again in that scene where he and Chewbacca board the Millennium Falcon. 
it was all about remaking Star Wars. And I had people, I had one person online say, the, the Force Awakens isn't a remake of Star Wars. Well, I don't know what movie you saw, but just sit down and compare those plots. Yes, it is. Yeah, we have new characters. But we are really there for the old group for one last hurrah. And the financial franchise plan worked. And like a good Big Mac that you can enjoy anywhere in the world, Force Awakens hit the global billion benchmark and established Disney as the monolith of filmmaking. They hit so close to familiar territory that many hoped that the next Disney sequel film would go in a bit of a different direction, kind of like Empire Strikes Back did. Disney gave it a shot with Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. But instead of elevating the story and taking characters down different arcs, we got woke preaching, misplaced environmentalism, political correctness, and a film that basically opens with a your mama prank phone call a la Howard Stern. Don't get me started on the Princess Leia Mary Poppins in space scene, which brought gales of unintentional laughter from the pack theater I was in viewing this movie. Feel however you want about Last Jedi, but it was a clear alarm bell for Disney to not fuck with the financial franchise plan. Their glorious convention where they proclaimed a Star Wars movie per year for the next 50 years was suddenly in peril. Rogue One seemed to show some hope with the best of any of the, they were, it was, it was the best of any of the new Disney era films with a solid prequel that, according to some behind the scenes, required major reshoots to get us what we did. The financial franchise plan was not foolproof. And what we were seeing was the machine cranking out the empty toy merchandise boxes, but no figures were ready yet to meet the demand. You were getting Star Wars, but it was fully packaged. Plot holes, silly preachiness, characters and plot lines that either went nowhere or backpedaled. We had a mess on our hands. Solo, a Star Wars story, was the worst performing of all the films to date in the entire franchise. But there was some hope in The Mandalorian, with many proclaiming that this was where Star Wars needed to go, to TV, to the small screen, in carefully written and controlled series formats. Maybe. Disney saw the financial merch machine with Baby Yoda and jumped fast and ended its first season with a more familiar return to that tried-and-true territory with a 1983-era Luke Skywalker appearance. They knew, don't stray too far. And Rise of Skywalker brought Abrams back. You can almost see the panic meetings in Kathleen Kennedy's office to the backlash of The Last Jedi. You can just see her getting on the phone. Get me JJ. Just get me JJ. We got to fix this shit. After giving Colin Trevorrow the boot, Johnson created a massive headache by making an anti-fan movie for Star Wars fans that would polarize the demographic and thus jeopardize ticket sales. The Rise of Skywalker promised a further return to familiar territory by bringing back Emperor Palpatine and to show how desperate Disney was to restore the Force into the financial uh, franchise plan. They never even really explain how the Emperor survived his plummet down the chasm in Return of the Jedi, let alone made it out of the exploding Death Star. I mean, it's, it's just pretty much a scene of... Oh, the Emperor's back, and he's been doing this. Now it's a hero's journey to find the magic place with the magic thing, and all that stuff that was reversed in Last Jedi is now 180'd 
to give us not a connection of of Ray to Obi-Wan, but rather to Palpatine for some reason. And again, I think that's the old J.J. Abrams plan, which I talk about all the time and will in a moment, just to throw people off. I mean, how did Palpatine survive and then build all these Death Star destroyers on this Sith planet? And most of all, who fucking cares? Is Finn a Jedi? Will he end up with Rey? It doesn't matter. All of that set up in the first film was kicked to the side in the second and trashed in the third. Kylo Ren is dead at the end. Rey proclaims herself a Skywalker and, well, seeing the Force ghost twins at the end, I guess it wrapped up. I guess. It didn't matter. Made a fuck ton of money. Just before the pandemic shut down the world, Disney got its money. However, Disney blinked. Not long into the release of The Rise of Skywalker did Disney announce that there was a change to their 50-year plan, and maybe there wouldn't be a new Star Wars movie per year. Maybe they needed to actually think where this universe was headed. They were making sure they kept tighter reins on the Marvel Universe, but the Lucas Universe was chaos. And Abrams was part of all of this. This mess shows he is a cog in a machine, not a creative filmmaker that can seize control of a spiraling production and write it. He is a stopgap. We saw this with Into Darkness, Star Trek Into Darkness. He single-handedly and brilliantly revived the entire Star Trek universe in one movie and then sunk it in the next two. His handling of Into Darkness followed his formula, which I call, no it's not, no it's not, okay it is. He does things to keep what he feels are plot surprises secret. He, he denies, 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 and he wants to keep these plot surprises secret for as long as possible. And even when rumored to be discovered, he continues the denial until finally upon the film's release, he surrenders and tells us we were right the entire time. He did this with Lost. He did this with Super 8. He did this with Cloverfield. And as even the Lost series painted itself into a corner, intending only to be on the air for maybe three, four seasons, Abrams got into his deny, deny, deny formula, and the ending of Lost was exactly what he said it would not be. Abrams was brought into Star Wars as Spielberg light, and he could get the tone of the films right, but not the feel. But under the new financial franchise plan, that's all that mattered. As long as it looked like Star Wars, as long as it tasted like Star Wars, and it wasn't the prequels, then all would be well. And it was for that first sequel, which again was nothing more than a remake of the original Star Wars film. There was no story plan for the saga. It was a move to recoup that $4 billion paid out by getting a return on that investment as soon as possible. Overextended financially in both film purchases and theme park expansion, Disney may have bit off more than it could chew with no time to digest. All of Lucas's story ideas went out the window, and the company went forward in eliminating canon to make official Disney canon, and in that process jettisoned some rich material through legitimate venues or even Lucas-recognized fan fiction that could have, at the least, warranted examination before summative dismissal. There was some enriching material out there that Disney could have used, but it chose not to and created its own canon. Disney had its plan, but it didn't have a narrative. And this is what's brought Star Wars and the Mouse to some reckoning, synthesized 
in this recent Collider article. It's not all Abrams' fault. Compare him to Jeannot Swark, the director who came in after John Hancock to direct Jaws 2. He came in at the last minute to helm Jaws 2, Swark did. He did a good job, did enough of a job, and his job was to simply get the film to hit its beats and make the tickets sell. Both Abrams and Swark did this. This was also asked of Colin Trevorrow on Jurassic World, which was basically a remake of the original three Jurassic Park films with scenes literally recreated almost frame by frame from those movies. Was Jurassic World directed or managed with the script simply a laundry list of set pieces to connect together? The financial plan for Jurassic World was well in place, and again, by the very company that created it, Universal Studios, who kicked it all off in 1978 with the release of Jaws 2. See how I took that full circle? You probably didn't expect me to go from Jaws and Jaws 2 through Halloween, Friday the 13th, and bring it all the way back to Star Wars. That's the magic of cinema. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking to you again real soon.